to another episode of Frenemies. I'm Austin. Joel's here with me as always. We are recording this the week after Super Bowl Sunday in which Tom Brady, who in I think both Joel's and my books and probably in a lot of your books too, was already the GOAT, but now really is the GOAT. Yeah, I mean, there's really no argument to be made. Some people have the discussion, okay, he won with Belichick, he won six Super Bowls, which in itself was already an incredible achievement, but he goes down to Tampa Bay. He brings people, resurrects their careers. I mean, well, not necessarily resurrect. Well, Antonio Brown, he takes him into his home. He catches a touchdown. Gronkowski, who didn't really do a whole ton most of the regular season, has two touchdowns. He comes out of retirement. The pieces really just fell into place down in Tampa Bay. We got to see playoff Lenny, Leonard Fournette, which was just a great time. And the Buccaneers just, they played a superior game and they clicked at the right time, which was in the postseason. And they had to go through Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, Taylor Heineke, don't forget about that, (laughs) as well as Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. And Tom Brady just showed that he doesn't matter that he's 43. He's still going to play at an elite level. Doesn't matter that he was on a new team for the first time in over a decade. Exactly. Learns the new playbook. It took a little time to get get it going and really get that chemistry going. But when it did... Man, they went on a run, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are Super Bowl 55 champs. I genuinely want to know what the prop bet was on Rob Gronkowski, of all people, being the Bucks' leading receiver in this game. <laughs> like, I love the fact that the dude was literally retired for two years. In those two years, he went on Fox Sports as an analyst, he danced with the Laker girls, and he, like, sold cannabis, basically. He was like an ad salesman for weed. Comes back. He's still, and I think we can have this discussion as well, but he may be the greatest tight end of all time. And he was, like, fine. He didn't do much during the regular season, didn't do a ton during the playoffs. I will say, though, and there's a point that some really smart uh, football analysts were making both on Twitter and on some podcasts I've listened to, he is still an amazing blocker, even at his age. Um, And Gronk setting the edge for the likes of, like, playoff Lenny and my guy from USC, Ronald Jones, was huge in terms of Tampa establishing their run game, not only in this game, but in games past. But then he comes out and scores two touchdowns, 67 yards. I mean, what else can you say? He and Brady have now connected on more playoff touchdowns than anyone in NFL history, uh, surpassing Montana and Rice. It's just incredible. And then what can you say about Tom, man? The dude just knows how to win. The four people who scored touchdowns, Fournette, Gronkowski, well, Gronkowski scored two, excuse me, and Antonio Brown are all in Tampa because Tom Brady's in Tampa. It's incredible. Yeah, it just speaks to the influence. So many people want to play with him when you see a guy like Gronk come out of retirement. And everyone who scored a touchdown, like you mentioned, was not in Tampa last year. So they're all first-year players, and they came. They wanted to play with the GOAT. He had six Super Bowl rings, and I thought something was really cool. Um, a lot of discussion going on when Tom Brady was coming to Tampa Bay Chris Godwin, the receiver for the Buccaneers, was formerly number 12. He gave up his number to Tom Brady. Tom said, hey, I want my number. And he said, hey, I'm going to bring you a Super Bowl. And he made good on that promise this past Sunday. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding there. Tom gets it done. He had a great defense that really rallied in the postseason and played great. And all the guy does is win Super Bowls. His kids, I mean, they probably think that the Super Bowl after party on the field with the confetti, they probably think it's just a, you know, yearly celebration. Like, hey, here we here we go. You know, <laughs> yeah. his daughter Vivian obviously was so excited. He was holding her, let her hold the trophy. And he's like, 
this, he's like, I think we all knew this was going to happen. And to have that confidence in your first year in the team and just say, I think we knew this was going to happen coming into tonight. I mean, the guy's just a born winner. He's a legend and <laughs> I can't say enough good things about him really. I can't either. I mean, I come at this, Joel, as you know, I grew up a paint Manning fan. I started rooting for the Rams when they moved back to LA. I'm not a Tom Brady fan by any stretch of the imagination. You can't help but respect and acknowledge him as the GOAT. Like, the conversation's over. It was over before this. I think for most people, now it's really over. Like, we're not just talking about, you know, the Michael Jordan of basketball. We're talking about the Michael Jordan of basketball. If instead of Jordan feuding with Phil Jackson during that last dance season and then retiring, he decides to join a different team and then leads that team to the championship in his first year there. Like, that is incredible. And, like, Tampa Bay, two years ago, were coached by Dirk Cutter, had Jameis Winston as their quarterback. Like, they were a relevant backwater franchise. I'm sorry, they were. Tom Brady comes around and changes the entire culture of that team, and look what happens. Like, it's not just, yes, he played amazing in the Super Bowl. Yes, he's a way more accurate quarterback than Winston, which helps a lot in Bruce Arians' offense because Bruce Arians' offense is very risky, a lot of downfield throws. But the dude just knows how to create a winning culture. And I think Danny Amendola said it best earlier this week, former Patriot, uh, former Tom Brady teammate now with the Lions. Tom Brady is the Patriot way. There is no Patriot way without Tom Brady. Look what happened to the Patriots this year. Like, oh my gosh. The Brady-Belichick divorce could not have been more decisively won than it was this year by Tom Brady. Yeah, he creates a winning culture, like you said. And that was reflected in so many players' postseason interviews. Even Coach Bruce Arians, after the game, he said, we had talent on this team, we just needed a leader for us to rally around. And they found that in signing the best quarterback to ever do it, Tom Brady. The best football player The best football player to do it. So Tom Brady, he comes down to Tampa and he just creates that winning environment. The players start believing, that talent starts to come out, and it ends in a Super Bowl victory. And, you know, what, what I think is so amazing at age 43, not only that he won his seventh, but that he looks so good. I mean, Tom Brady, they showed him over the years. Yeah. The guy looks better than he ever has. He's, yeah. been down the, he's been down the Florida sun. He's having a good time down there with his wife and kids. He looks tan. He's hanging out with his buddies Gronk and winning Super Bowls. I saw a cool conversation. He went over to Gronk, and he was like, this is what we do, buddy. And they were celebrating the two tutties that Gronk had. I mean, they're just best buds. And, you know, that's that's an incredible thing to say after a Super Bowl. But you can when you've won seven to say this is what we do. The biggest flex is a week after doing that Bad Boys for Life video that Brady and Gronk did. They're <laughs> supermodel wives going down on the field and reenacting it after you win a Super Bowl. That is the greatest flex in the history of flexes. Giselle, uh, <laughs> Brady, and Camille Kosek going down and doing that on their way to see Brady and Gronk after they won that Super Bowl. Like That is just incredible. But yeah, I will say this. As much credit as we're giving Brady, we also have to give credit to the Bucks defense. Where I'm really impressed is their secondary. I watched them earlier in the season, especially that game against the Rams, where they made Jared Goff look like a pro bowler, which in 2020, Jared Goff most certainly was not. Their secondary was getting trashed. I believe it was the week after that um, the Chiefs played them, and they got absolutely torn up by Tyree Kill that game. Todd Bowles deserves a lot of credit for getting the most out of that secondary this postseason, as well as the fact that this front seven and this pass rush and this run defense – 
they allowed the fewest rushing yards of any NFL team over the regular season. So that aspect of their defense wasn't a fluke. And then, oh my gosh, what Shaq Barrett did, what Jason Pierre-Paul did this week against Mahomes, just making him run for his life. And even Mahomes, who may be the most talented player in the NFL today, running for his life the entire game, like that is very, very impressive. And, you know, to be the guy that talented, that's what you have to do. You cannot let him get comfortable for one second, and the Bucks did not. So that was just extremely impressive. And a lot of kind of, it's funny, you hear a lot about the pirate ship because, of course, that's a big part of the Buccaneers logo. But also, this team kind of has a little bit of a feel of a pirate ship. A lot of guys who were kind of cast off or left other organizations all the way up to uh, Bruce Arians there as the head guy. Yeah, it's just been amazing. It's it's the veterans getting it done. I mean, Jason Pierre-Paul, he played in those Super Bowls against Tom Brady as a member of the New York Giants. Fun fact, he only played in the last of those Super Bowls. Jason Pierre-Paul has never lost a playoff game. The only two times he's been was that Super Bowl where he beat Brady back in 2011-2012. Yeah. And then this Super Bowl. Yeah. So it's he's he's you know, he's kind of resurrected his career. I mean, he's back in the playoffs and he goes this time with Tom Brady. And yeah, an amazing feat to beat him obviously. In 2011, Mario Manningham made that spectacular grab, led the Giants to their their second win over Tom Brady, but he's got to be happy to have Tom Brady as a teammate and for me as a football fan growing up, you know, in my I'm I'm 23 years old now, seeing these players that I watched as a kid winning Super Bowls now, it's just it's awesome to see. I I I love to see it. Jason Pierre-Paul and Dominican Sue, say what you will about some of his earlier incidents, he's cleaned up his act. He's a great pass rusher regardless and seeing these old guys winning it, you know, the league is starting to get taken over a little bit by young players, but it hasn't fully happened yet as you can see. The old guys are still running the show a little bit and Super Bowl 55 champs kind of a ragtag crew like you said of old veterans mixed with that young talent winning a Super Bowl how does that hook of bad boys for life start we ain't going nowhere <laughs> Brady's not going anywhere yet and it's going to be interesting to see because as long as the Bucks have Tom Brady now you have to consider them a Super Bowl favorite like you have to one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, Joel, is I want to get back to Todd Bowles. Again, another cast off. He was fired as head coach of the Jets. The Jets then went and hired Adam Gase, and that turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. Todd Bowles didn't have the best track record as head coach of the Jets, but it seems like they sure downgraded there, and he showed what a great defensive coordinator he was in this game. My question is, though, he did use the two high safeties against the Chiefs' deadly receivers for a lot of the game. That seemed to help. What also helped is just their pass rush and against a banged-up Chiefs offensive line. My question to you is, do you consider this more of a fluke just considering how good the Bucks' pass rush is? And, again, Chiefs had a banged-up offensive line that just got dominated. Or do you think there are takeaways here? Um, I know you're very invested in this as a Chargers fan of, kind of offering a blueprint to beat the Chiefs kind of going forward in the future? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, definitely. And it's a it's one that a lot of people have brought up after the Chiefs were held to just three field goals. They had no touchdowns in that game. I think there were definitely a lot of factors that mixed in to making this Chiefs offense look so depleted. I think there are parts that you can take from it and definitely benefit Obviously, the glaring one, if you get a, if you get a pass rush on any team, you're going to have a good likelihood for success. If you can rush four players and drop the rest back and get and just make the guy run for his life, I mean, I know he's Patrick Mahomes and he did all he could. And quite frankly, I don't think that he at all was the reason they lost the game. He was giving it all he could. But when you have guys in your face immediately, it's going to be hard. So I think there are certain aspects that you can take from it. 
Obviously, as you mentioned, they are a little banged up on offensive line, um, and that goes into it. Not to take any of the credit away from Tampa Bay's defense, but I think it shows a little bit of a blueprint going forward if teams can really focus on just rushing four and dropping seven, as Todd Bowles did. Those two high safeties, they were not going to let Tyreek Hill get behind him, not going to let Nicole Hardman get behind them, and they played sticky coverage. As Tony Romo was saying, They their corners, Sean Murphy, Bunty, Antoine Winfield, they were sticking to their receivers really tightly. If you can get athletic corners that can match and you can hit Kelsey off the line, which they were doing a lot as well, they were having someone kind of bump Kelsey just so that he doesn't have a clean route. I know he had a lot of clean routes against the Bills and Tony Romo, I think, was getting driven crazy up in the <laughs> press box saying, you need someone to at least hit him on the line. You can't let him have a free release. Yep. He'll get open on a quick out or in route. So just a lot of combination of things. And I, I think definitely there are things that can be taken from it. I think... Um, during the offseason, every team in the AFC West should be studying what the Buccaneers did, including my Chargers, as well as the Broncos, Las Vegas Raiders, um, and the teams they're going to be playing. Because if you can get pressure on Patrick Mahomes and you can drop seven people, I think it's it's a formula for success. And they are beatable. They have a lot of ways to beat you. But if you can somehow account for all those and you can make Mahomes' life miserable by getting pressure in his face, I think that's a way that you can beat the Chiefs. And I think that's probably their most vulnerable position would be the offensive line. It's definitely not the receiving core. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. My my question is, I just think it's kind of hard to replicate how good this Bucks team looked. I mean, we saw the week before the Packers had one of the best offensive lines in football this past year, and the Bucks were just trashing them in the NFC Championship game. I just wonder how much of that, I mean, the Chargers obviously have some really big forces on the offensive line. Joey Bosa, of course. So I'm not saying that they can't replicate this at all. I just don't see a team constantly having as much success doing what the Bucks did in terms of just right. getting Mahomes to run for his life every play as the Bucks did in this game. So I don't know. It'll be interesting going forward. Yeah. You mentioned the physicality of the Bucks defense also more in the secondary, and that leads us to our next point is obviously the Chiefs got in a bit of trouble for the physicality on their side. There were a ton of flags specifically in the second quarter. And I remember we had our friend's group chat and we were texting back and forth. And you made the point that as a Chargers fan, as someone who's seen the Chiefs up close twice a year, you were happy that these flags were finally getting thrown on this defense, which is, I think, a take that a lot of other fans watching the game didn't have. So can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so pretty much what I was seeing, there were some calls that were a bit questionable in that game, but a lot of them I saw, I saw pulling, I saw, I saw a little grabbing, and I've kind of seen this all season. Tony Romo has talked about in his analysis of the Chiefs defense and how they've been so successful, and he does, he uses that word sticky, says they have sticky coverage, and I was going back and watching a little bit, and on a lot of them, it's not egregious, but on a lot of plays where they are right with their man, they have a little hand on the jersey. They have a little hand wrapped. It's it's little subtle things. And I kind of noticed that by analyzing a little bit um, as the two weeks of prep, obviously overanalyzed the crap out of everything prior to the Super Bowl and looking at the defense. But I think that there were definitely some instances in which Chiefs defensive backs got away with a little pull, a little wraparound, and I think that the refs held back nothing. They they called every little thing in this game, and it cost them as they had 95 yards in the first half alone on penalties. Sure. Earlier today, I was listening to the Ringers NFL show, which features one of my favorite football analysts out there, a guy by the name of Warren Sharp. If you haven't checked him out, do it. I believe his Twitter is 
at Sharp Football. Great analyst, great numbers guy, but he made a lot of interesting points. But I think my biggest takeaway in terms of when they, when he and his co-host talked about um, officiating was that it was kind of this perfect storm between you have the head official of the Super Bowl who tends to call a ton of penalties. I think he throws the most flags out of any uh, head official in the NFL. You have this Chiefs defense is, like you said, known for being very handsy, very grabby. Um, Warren does some consulting for different NFL teams, and he'd say, you know, coaches, tell the refs, like, hey, watch for this. Watch for them, you know, holding. Watch for them interfering like this. Third thing, too, is clearly the Bucks were doing that. And the reason Warren Chart feels so confident in saying that is because they had clearly told Tony Romo. And Tony Romo seemed to make a big point of it early on in the in the Super Bowl telecast. So with all that said, that seems kind of like a perfect storm of getting all those flags in the second quarter. Notice none of that has to do with Brady. Um, it was funny. I posted something to Instagram as kind of like half jokingly saying, name a bigger Tom Brady fan club than the NFL refs. You can't. <laughs> and I got a ton of feedback, more than I usually do whenever I post random sports stuff on my Instagram story. A lot of people enjoyed that. But at the end of the day, you know, it seems like Brady really wasn't a factor in those plays getting called as much. I mean, I'm sure he knows how to work the refs as much as anyone, but that's just more classic gamesmanship than I think anything particularly egregious. The one thing is, too, it's clear that they were very consistent in these calls, kind of what the Chiefs are usually comfortable with and what they usually think they can get away with, which I think is a little bit of a problem. All that to say, though, the Bucks won this game 31-9. to at the most, it maybe makes it like maybe it's within a touchdown. Maybe. Maybe. It did not change the outcome of this game. The Bucks thoroughly outplayed the Chiefs, especially on defense against Mahomes. You can't argue that. So ultimately, there were some concerning things, but you cannot make an argument that this affected the outcome of the game. It did not. Yeah, Bucks were going to win the game regardless. You, you can look at stuff, and even SportsCenter was, was trying to find an alternate they were looking at it after a few days they were trying to find an alternate way in which the chiefs did and they found a way where maybe they could make up some of those points but ultimately they came to the conclusion they're like that this wouldn't have changed it it wouldn't have made up the gap they lost by quite a wide margin by 31 to 9 so it wouldn't it wouldn't have really changed the entire outcome of the game sure maybe it would have been a little more interesting maybe maybe people would have tuned in uh Maybe more people would have tuned in. Interesting fact: this had the lowest rating in years, um, as far as yeah. viewership. So kind of kind of interesting. Maybe COVID. I don't know. You can attribute different things to that. Not sure why, but um, it was by by maybe someone who doesn't have a, a anybody in the fight. You know, who doesn't want anyone to win. Maybe could be less interesting because it was a blowout. Maybe t- turned it off at twenty one six at halftime. I don't know. Sure, and I'm sure that the NFL is probably upset about that as if, you know, if the game had been closer uh, going into the second half and if it had remained somewhat close, at least for a bit of the second half, they might those ratings might have gotten juiced up a bit. So I'm sure that the league office isn't necessarily happy with how the game was officiated either. But at the end of the day, again, the bottom line is you just cannot make an argument that this had a tangible effect on the outcome because the Bucks thoroughly dominated the Chiefs. On both sides of the ball, in you know the second half, they kind of started running away with it. They scored ten more points. The the Chiefs only scored three, and then of course on uh, when the Bucks were on defense, Mahomes was running for his life, and that that doesn't change with the flags that get thrown against the Chiefs defense or not. It just doesn't. Yeah. So 
Definitely not what some people expected. Uh, it is somewhat what I expected. I expected the Bucks and Tom Brady. Not what I expected, <laughs> which which you know. I called the right. Chiefs. I just couldn't see any way. Um, I feel a lot like Marcus Spears on Get Up, <laughs> where I just got too enamored with how good and creative the Chiefs were that I missed the very glaring hole that they had, a banged-up offensive line against a Bucks pass rush that was on the top of its game and that ended up being one of the biggest differences in this game yeah I just I just felt I couldn't go against Tom Brady I went with my gut and I guess yeah my gut was right in this one Tom Brady with seven Super Bowls and last year though the Chiefs won the Super Bowl and following that Super Bowl uh, Travis Kelsey said you gotta fight for your right to party well it was the Buccaneers who fought for their right to party this year and man did they on Wednesday Austin <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, that boat parade was epic. I saw a tweet about that video of him getting escorted off, clearly just absolutely hammered. Um, And I saw a tweet that said, uh, when Giselle lets you have three whole almonds, which of course is a a dig at his TB12 method diet. But um, (laughs) even still, it's just, I mean, what more can you say? I mean, the guy has definitely earned his right to party. And He's earned the right to throw the Lombardi Trophy across to another boat. <laughs> hey, Cameron Brait makes one more, one more big clutch catch. So you know he's been making those all season. Brady's still trusting his receivers. What can you say? Yeah, I mean they're having fun down there in Tampa. Tom Brady pulled up in a two million dollar yacht that he owned that he's bought earlier <laughs> in the season that he bought as he moved down to Florida. So. I think a lot of people are seeing a different side of Tom that they like, you know? Florida Tom, you gotta love him. And he's, yeah, like you say, he's chucking the Lombardi trophy. You could hear his daughter in the background, his daughter Vivian yelling, Daddy, no, don't do it. And so it was a little bit of a hairy moment. You don't want that trophy to fall into the bay. But when you've won seven and you go to a new franchise and win it in your first year there, uh, you gotta let loose a little. You gotta chuck the trophy. I saw Scotty Miller actually knock Chris Godwin's phone into the water. So we're losing phones. We could have lost the Lombardi trophy. It was a, a wild day there on Wednesday in Tampa Bay, but Tom Brady letting loose a little bit and, and nobody more deserving to do it than the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They have earned it and Gronkowski down there dancing on the boat, having a great time. He was definitely in his element. He did that after every Super Bowl win. That is a man who knows how to party Rob Gronkowski and he did it yet again down there in Florida, and it was it was fun to see. A lot of fun videos coming out of there. You know, Joel, I got to give your Chargers some props because, as Adam Schefter reminded us recently, only two teams expressed interest in Tom Brady when he announced he was going to leave New England, which seems insane now because how do we forget so easily that he's still the greatest player of all time and he still had some gas left in the tank? But the only other team besides the Bucks was your Chargers. And I know, obviously, he decided to go to Florida. I think um, Bruce Arians and the lack of an income tax in Florida may have helped out a bit. <laughs> but you guys got a little bit of a consolation prize in the fact that Justin Herbert, your rookie stud, won uh, Offensive Rookie of the Year. Well-deserved. Joel, what are you looking forward to in year two of the Herbert era under a new coach? Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to a lot of things. Justin Herbert made his first start against the Kansas City Chiefs. He was told five minutes before kickoff that he was going to be the starter. The young rookie from Oregon, he came in and he almost beat Patrick Mahomes in that game. I think a lot of people right. kind of forget about it, but he, he went toe-for-toe with Mahomes. That game went to overtime. The Chargers ultimately lost by a score of 23-20. But I have a lot of hope for the future because even under the coaching staff, that I've ranted and raved, and I won't do it again, but even under the coaching staff that was 
less than ideal for the Chargers. He still lit it up and set many rookie records for passing yards, touchdowns, passer rating, even with that. And Pep Hamilton was a big thing to do with that. But Joe Lombardi coming over from the New Orleans Saints, I think, is going to help grow him even more. And I'm really excited to see what happens with our healthy receivers and Justin Herbert just developing that arm strength and that accuracy even more here in year two. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, he's going to be really, really fun for Chargers fans to watch for a long time. Aaron Donald of my Rams also won Defensive Player of the Year for the NFC. Actually, for the NFL. I forgot they do it um, by league. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Defensive Player of the Year for the NFL. And I, it's funny. I remember um, his most notable quote after winning that was basically, you know, I have all these individual awards now, and it's great, but I really just want to win a Lombardi. He reminds me so much of the guy who Clayton Kershaw was for most of his career up until this last year. He's this generational superstar, and he's been lauded as such, but now he just wants to win a championship more than anything. The Rams obviously believe their uh, Super Bowl window is open. That trade from Matthew Stafford that we discussed last week. So yeah, clock's ticking for Aaron Donald, but good to see him pick up another award. Yeah, well-deserved. He's, in my opinion, the most dominant defensive player in the game at any given time. He has the ability to take over a game, and you've seen that so many times. He showed that this season, as he has in many past seasons. And yeah, that I mean, the awards are nice and everything, but he wants he wants that ring, he wants that trophy, and he knows that the Rams have the talent to do so. And so what we will see in this next season, um, early projections are already coming out and things. People are talking, speculating about what may happen, but I think that the Rams chances this next season are definitely better than they were this current season and yeah would like to see Aaron Donald make a deep run to the playoffs I as a Chargers fan I cannot say that I'd like to see him win one Aaron Donald the player I'd like to see win one not necessarily the Los Angeles Rams but (laughs) I would like to see the Chargers win one before them that may be wishful thinking but exciting 2021 season for both our teams coming up absolutely can't wait to see the moves they make in this offseason and can't wait for fall speaking of offseason moves (laughs) I'm I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave (laughs) hey remember when Trevor Bauer tweeted what's up Angels fans and you freaked out for like two days no I forgot it I I, I think he deleted it what happened next Joel (laughs) I I don't want to talk about it I don't want to talk about it he pulled a Kevin Durant he went to an already (laughs) loaded team like I've already said we talked about it before he signed I said the Dodgers don't need him Go somewhere where you have Mike Trout and you can build. I would have been even fine with him going to the Mets, but no. He goes to a team that already has Walker Bueller, Clayton Kershaw, Dustin May, Urias. And uh, it's just the San Diego Padres are another team. The Mets, for one, have got to be upset. The Angels were a little bit out of the running as our pitching coach is in trouble. He's suspended after sending alleged lewd comments to people on the staff. So the Angels were out. Yeah, San Diego Padres have got to be pissed because the Dodgers said, oh, you want to grab arms? All right, well, we're going to add a Cy Young winner to our already loaded rotation. So Dodgers already were World Series favorites, in my opinion, now even more so. And uh, I texted Austin. I said, I want to put my head in a hole the rest of baseball season. And (laughs) yeah, I I knew we'd have to talk about this, but not something I'm pleased about, to say the least. A couple big things. First of all, the Dodgers now have three former MVPs in Clayton Kershaw, Cody Bellinger, and Mookie Betts, and three former Cy Young winners in Kershaw, David Price, and Bauer on their team, which is absurd. Andrew Friedman 
is also a genius. He's been offering a deal like this for superstars. And you can debate. There's a lot of debate over there in terms of whether you should consider Trevor Bauer a bona fide superstar. The guy's definitely unique. He's also had some big up and down years. He won his Cy Young in a short season against a division with pretty weak offense, even though he was in a very hitter-friendly park up there in Cincinnati. But at the end of the day, this type of short-term high-value deal is something that Andrew Freeman's been pursuing for a while, and Trevor Bauer was the perfect guy to take him up on it. The deal is really unique. It's really interesting. It's got player options every year. It's a three-year deal. He's making $40 million this year, highest-paid player in Major League Baseball. I think that's more than, right now, three or four teams' payrolls. He's making $45 million next year. And then what's really interesting is a player option for just $17 million the third year. Now, what that does, this essentially makes it a two-year $85 million deal. But here's the key thing. Because of that $17 million third year, it means that the average annual value of the contract is not $40 million. It's not $45 million. It's $34 million. The AAV, as it's called, is what's used to calculate how much of a team's payroll goes towards the luxury tax, which is basically how baseball tries to have a soft salary cap. Bauer's contract only counts $34 million against that. Each of these next two years, despite him earning $40 million and then $45 million. Um, so that's definitely kind of a genius move by Andrew Freeman to kind of lower the tax bill there. Um, and then when you get down to the depth, how this affects the depth kind of not just past the big four of Bueller, Kershaw, Bauer, and Price, but also beyond that. This means that Julio Urias, who was so key as a, as a reliever, he essentially became the Dodgers' closer towards the end of the World Series there and towards the end of the NLCS, means he could potentially become a bullpen arm full-time which, as hesitant as the Dodgers might be to make that leap, with how bad Kenley Jansen has looked um, in 2020 and even kind of before that, he's clearly in his decline. That's huge. So this move, I think, almost provides as big a boost to the Dodgers' bullpen as it does to the rotation. And yeah, it absolutely ensures that they are World Series favorites. It keeps them kind of ahead of the Padres in the arm race there. Of course, the Padres brought over Blake Snell and Hugh Darvish. Uh, they look like they have a fantastic roster ready to compete. Those games are going to be primetime viewing, going to be looked at. Kind of the eyes of the baseball world will be tuned to Southern California whenever one of those games happens. So really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's it's just it's staggering to look at the depth that the Dodgers have with Walker Bueller emerging as a superstar, Clayton Kershaw, Bauer, Price. The fact that Dustin May, who is an excellent pitcher, is maybe the fifth or sixth best pitcher on this team is i mean it's, it's yeah he might not even make the rotation at he first. might not even and that's that's insane to say really uh, the way he's played he's he's played very well and shown a ton of huge potential and yeah it's just a loaded dodgers pitching staff and and that has nothing to do with their offense but their offense is also excellent so when you you combine those two things that's really what you look for to win a world series and they have all the pieces to do it and they just added another excellent piece so it's really, it's really a scary thing. I, uh, I'm not pleased about it, and I know that uh, fans across the NL West are not. I live here in Colorado. I've been yeah. talking to some Colorado <laughs> Rockies fans. Obviously, they're in dismay with the Arenado trade, and yeah. they're they're looking at it, and they've been going through the. Rain they rain. really have. They they're looking at it on paper, and they're saying we we should lose 95% of our games probably on paper to the Dodgers, and so you. It's just it's pretty demoralizing for the likes of the Giants, the Diamondbacks, obviously the Padres, 
talented team will take a few off of them probably and will get that wild card spot I'm sure but it's it's a daunting thing for the entire Major League Baseball to look at um, a team that already was so stacked in his off a World Series to add the reigning Cy Young winner just to throw him in there and be like yeah yeah field DR our three pitcher you know just won the Cy Young but you know we we, we also have Bueller and Kershaw so it's just uh, it's annoying for baseball fans, I'm sure, uh, who aren't Dodgers fans. But for you, Austin, I'm sure you're you're happy. I know you sent me just a long thing of laughing as you introed into this. <laughs> you sent me a text, and I was just like, "Well, uh, what's what's next after baseball season? You know, football season again." That's <laughs> already looking ahead to the end of this year. <laughs> I will say, yeah, just to wrap up this segment, this is gonna be probably the only year that the Dodgers will have this much talent on their roster. They can't keep this core together for too long. The reason being is that Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger, their two best young position players, are about to be due for massive extensions. Scott Boris, the famous or infamous MLB super agent who loves securing massive long-term deals for his clients, is the agent for both of them. So if I were a betting man, I would bet against both Seager and Bellinger coming back and remaining Dodgers long-term, which adds a lot of intrigue into next offseason when Seager is a free agent, Bellinger is a free agent the year after that, Walker Buehler is going to be due for an extension soon. It's going to be really interesting, which means that right now in 2021, is the Dodgers' probably best chance. I'm not saying it's their only chance going forward, but it's the best chance that they will have to win a World Series. It will be their best roster on paper for maybe the rest of the decade. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. As you mentioned, free agent. So many stars can't stay on one team. You know, they're going to want to get paid. And yeah, this year, though, it it looks like on paper they've got all the talent and they've got all all the tools to make a run. Kind of like we mentioned with the Lakers. The Lakers already won and then added some tools. The Dodgers have kind of done the same thing. They won and retooled a little bit. And it is scary on paper. So we'll see if talent that we see on paper translates. It did last year. Obviously, Dodgers were an excellent team, but different look for this season. It's looking like we're going to get a full schedule, a lot more than the 60 games we played last season. So it's it's going to be fun to see how... How that happens, what injuries develop, you know, a longer season, a lot of variables can come into that. But Dodgers definitely should be heavy World Series favorites on paper going into this normal season, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Let's have it be as normal as it can be. Hopefully. All right, we'll wrap up with some NBA talk. I know um, the Celtics are playing the Raptors right now. They just won, actually. Update. They took they took the win, 120-106. to 106. I'm sure you love to see that, especially since they have a little two-game skid right there. Um, the big story out of L.A. is that the Lakers still have the best, the best record, I believe, still in the Western Conference, despite the fact that they have not been playing their best basketball. They have gone to overtime three straight games against three very mediocre, underwhelming, non-playoff opponents, Detroit, and then... Oklahoma City twice, excuse me, they are a half game back of the Utah Jazz right now who look absolutely on fire for the one seed. Lakers currently have the two seed. There's a couple takeaways here. The first is being that I wrote about this before the season, but it's clear that the Lakers are fatigued. A lot of those guys, even the guys they added, play quite a bit in the bubble. They're not playing their best basketball right now by any stretch of the imagination. But as Harrison Fagan predicted when he was on this podcast a couple months ago, LeBron James is gunning for MVP, and that is what is keeping them afloat right now because, oh my goodness, 
he is playing his heart out. He's 36 years old, and he is doing things that a 36-year-old should not be doing in NBA games. Yeah, LeBron, he's been a, he's been incredible. I mean, <laughs> we've talked about it already, and you know, we wondered how long his three-point shooting could keep up at this rate, but it's it's gotten even better. I mean, the guy he's hitting clutch threes in overtime. I mean, granted, probably shouldn't be going to overtime against these teams, but LeBron, he he ain't messing around this season. He ain't resting or anything. He's leading this team and he is hitting huge threes and he's put them on this win streak. Pretty or not, it's it's because of LeBron James. I'm glad you mentioned the three-point shooting. I checked today, 39.4% from three. The highest mark of his career and it's not close. He's also taking almost seven threes per game, another career high. The fact that he's now improving his three-point shooting and he's kind of perfecting that makes him, I think Dwayne Wade said this recently, He's every bit, if not more, dangerous as he was in Miami, which, remember, was also the last time he won an MVP was when he was playing in Miami. So really, really intriguing to look at going forward. Uh, Anthony Davis, unsurprisingly, he's already endorsed LeBron for MVP. I think that seems to be where things are trending. Your team's best player, Jason Tatum, has looked pretty good post-COVID. I know he had some issues there. The Celtics are kind of up and down right now, Joel. Um, I know Tatum's been playing well. They had quality wins against the Clippers and against the Warriors, but they seem to be kind of up and down right now, Joel. What's kind of your takeaway from this most recent stretch of Celtics games? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Obviously, yeah, we went up to Golden State and got a good win there, but then lost a close one to the Kings. We really had a tough stretch in the fourth quarter in which we just lacked offensive creativity. And yeah, I think that consistency and chemistry just needs to mesh We've had some struggles with that with players going out. We had a really good game. Jalen Brown played excellent against the Clippers, but then sat the next game with an injury as we lost a close one to the Suns. So I think a lot of things are kind of contributing to it. I do think that the Celtics are a very good team when everyone is clicking on the same page and when everyone's healthy. But during this five-game road trip, we really didn't have the chance to see all the players healthy and on the floor at the same time. And they haven't really had that extended two-week period, really, even to all play together with Kemba on the floor, Jalen Brown on the floor, Jason Tatum. They haven't really developed that chemistry fully yet this season, I don't think. And you see what they can do when they're all on the floor. But it, it's just tough with injuries and COVID and players being out. Um, I think our players have done an admirable job coming back from COVID and doing well. But yeah, it has just been a it has just been a little bit weird as as those players haven't really gotten that like say like six or seven straight games with like that starting squad with like no one resting or no one hurt or out with COVID. So I think they'll be okay once we're able to do that. But right now it's just been it's been inconsistent stretches in the fourth quarter. It's been bad defense. Obviously the Utah Jazz, Donovan Mitchell absolutely, and Joe Ingles too had a huge game. Absolutely lit up the Celtics from deep. So. It's a combination of just, yeah, a little bit of miscommunication defensively in clutch moments, as well as that lack of chemistry, I think is kind of what would contribute to the inconsistency. They're back home in TD Garden, just got a win tonight, so I'm hoping that uh, the confines of home will be a little bit friendlier and maybe can get into a little bit of a rhythm and a little bit of consistency. Yeah, no, that seems to be the way things are trending. Of course, the Jazz were kind of the first team to be struck by COVID um, back almost a year ago now. So maybe they're playing a little looser knowing that their two best players have already recovered from it. But yeah, I'd say it's definitely, that's the case for a lot of teams. 
maybe the Nets aren't as disadvantaged as Kyrie thinks they are in that regard. But yeah, definitely going to be interesting to see the Celtics really have their work cut out for them fighting to keep their heads above water in the East. Before we go, we would like to continue our new segment that we debuted last week of the Frenemies Tweet of the Week. This tweet happened just recently, just a few hours ago. Apparently it was National Roast Day. And so Wendy's decided to uh, bring on some challengers, the infamous Wendy's social media account. So who responds but the Tampa Bay Rays? Tampa Bay Rays say, go ahead, Wendy, absolutely roast us. Keep us spicy like your nugs. Wendy's responded, we're surprised you didn't pull your social media manager in the middle of writing that great tweet. So I think this means Wendy's owns the Rays franchise now. And it really, you know, I feel like this is just just the world balancing itself out. Uh, Tampa Bay's gotten way too used to winning lately, so they kind of have to take this big L right now. <laughs> oh, Wendy's. That's just brutal. Blake Snell, of all people, commented on it. He couldn't help but laugh, and honestly, I don't blame him, of course, for context, uh, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember. Game 6 of the World Series, Blake Snell was utterly dominating my Dodgers. Kevin Cash decides to pull him despite a low pitch count, I believe, in the seventh inning. And the Rays' bullpen immediately implodes. Uh, The Dodgers rally back to win and end up winning the World Series. So in light of that, Wendy's decide to have a little fun. And, um, yeah, I I think that's going to keep some Rays fans up at night. um, Not that they need to be reminded of what happened last World Series. That's it from us. Follow us at Frenemies Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and we will see you next week. Give that social media manager for Wendy's a raise. They aren't pulling him. <laughs> <laughs>